We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The folks who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make this show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to ListenerQ, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q.com forward slash pull up and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered in a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash pull up. That's ListenerQ.com slash pull up. Without further ado, I want to welcome Common, a.k.a. Rasheed Lynn. Appreciate you coming on the Pull Up Pod, man. Great to be here, CJ. Much love, y'all. Going to start with the childhood. My mother played a real prominent role in my life being a teacher. She kind of set a foundation for me to start thinking about goals and visions for myself. It wasn't like I came out and just blew up. It was one of those things where I was on the underground hip-hop scene and it was a gradual thing of me just grinding it out and figuring out ways and learning and then I started to develop my own voice. I started feeling like the more success I got, the more I had to represent black people, positive energy, like Basically, I was getting a seat at the table. That means I got to speak up. And that's what I feel like to this point. Welcome to the Jose Canseco episode of Pull Up. That's right, number 33. I'm currently in Portland, Oregon. Residing at home, looking outside. It looks about 57 and sunny. Uh, Waterfalls flowing as usual. Nice shades of green, red, and all other types of fall in the backyard right now as I look out there. It's been a great week. The Browns have won. It's always a great week when the Browns win. We go 3-0 and to wrap up our homestand of 5-1 and with the loss to the Lakers that we'd love to have back. But uh, such is life. Really looking forward to next week. We have a road trip where we got six games in nine days, 11 days out on the road. So one of the longer trips of the year, but always a fun time. Jimmy Butler has officially been traded to the Sixers. We'll have to discuss whether that helps them or not. Carmelo Anthony being blamed for things that don't involve him for the Houston Rockets. His time in Houston may be up shortly. Uh, There's also a a read on here. I'm supposed to read that I was the Western Conference Player of the Week, so I appreciate that. Shout out to my teammates for helping me win that award. Going 3-0 always is a good sign of Great team execution. Chief hit big shots. He's guarded some some great guys the last few games. Dame's been terrific. Uh, the rest of the team has played well, especially the bench unit. So shout out to those guys. Without further ado, Jordan Schultz. What's up, baby? How you living? I'm great, buddy. And uh, congratulations, man. That's uh, no joke. Big deal. The 40-point effort was uh, great in that it was, and this is what I love about Mr. McCollum, all within the offense. 17 to 26, 5 of 10 from 3. Now, I know you. And I know you would have preferred to get to the line more, but uh, 40 is no joke, man. 40 points in 36 minutes in a win over arguably the best team in the East and one of the best teams in the league, Milwaukee, who was really rolling. So, uh, hell of a win. And then, obviously, the Boston win was nice, the Clippers. So, big deal. Congratulations. And I noticed that you incorporate a little poetry into your read there, uh, the way you were talking about Portland and the fall leaves and – you know, I just I appreciate that because uh, once again you're displaying your Lehigh education. <laughs> I appreciate that, man, and uh, thanks for the kind words. It is beautiful out here right now. It's it's like California, you know, oh, 55, 60, and sunny around there. Uh, it's it's nice to see uh, the beauty, the nature, the, the the mountains in the background, the birds chirping, the deer in the backyard eating eating on my shrubs. 
uh, it's been a nice it's been a nice few days, man. So uh, just just thankful to be in the position I'm in. What do you attribute to the team playing so well right now? I mean, Minnesota, Milwaukee, Clippers, Boston, four straight, and uh, even that Laker game, I thought you guys played pretty well, and you had 30. So has anything changed at 10 and three right now, and one of the best teams in the West? Uh, we're heading in the right direction. I think we've been healthy. Uh, obviously, Mo's been down, so he's been in and out of the lineup. But we're just more mature. A year of experience, more you know, losing in the playoffs, uh, being together this uh, September, just kind of working on some things, understanding coach's game plan, uh, how we want to execute, you know, what we want to stand for defensively, what we want to stand for offensively. I think that's all been a factor, and we've we've made a point of emphasis on getting out to a. A good start this season. I think we've done that and some. Uh, we, we felt like we shouldn't have lost the game against the Wizards, but they executed better than we did down the stretch. We felt like uh, we gave one away to the Lakers at home, but they outplayed us down the stretch as well. The last, I don't know, two to uh, the last 10 minutes of the third quarter, they really outplayed us and we got down by, you know, 17, 20 points. So we can't have those, those laws. But overall, I think that we just played well. The bench has been great. And I think that's been the storyline. Our defense early on in the season and our bench have been terrific. Yeah. Defensively, big improvements. Offensively, you know, there's, there's just very few teams in the league that, that flow like you guys do, especially when you and Dame have a rolling. So congrats on the great start. Um, in the East, Jimmy Butler officially, a Philadelphia 76er. What was your first impression? Will this help them? Um, I asked on Twitter whether or not Philly was now the team to beat in the East. What do you think? It was an interesting trade. I think that based on the circumstances of what was going on, it was a good trade for both teams. Minnesota picks up two starting caliber players, one guy who was the defensive uh, first team All-NBA last season in Covington, a three-point shooter in Dario Saric, who's an overall skilled big man who can do a lot of different things and obviously the Sixers get Jimmy Butler he'll be re-energized he'll be excited to play in Philly with uh Embiid with Simmons with JJ some of those guys who you know are talented players but also know how to play the game I think the East has continued to to get better each year and this definitely helps the Eastern Conference out and as Brad Stevens said that the Sixers were a good team before and they're still a very good team yeah, I don't know if Philadelphia has discovered their identity yet. I think that was part of the reason they made the trade, um, especially defensively where you look at that roster and you would assume that this is going to be a lockdown defensive team and they obviously give away a very good defender in Covington. But Butler, my thing with him is, um, is he now going to be happy? Because we know he's had issues in Chicago and obviously in Minnesota. And then, you know, how does he... How does he ingratiate himself into a team that has two young stars in Simmons and Embiid? And is that a healthy thing for them? And and how will he respond to, you know, maybe not always getting the ball late in games? Yeah, I think there's some question marks floating out there. But one thing I know for certain, just having talked to Jimmy and known him, you know, over the last course of the couple couple seasons I played in the NBA is that he works hard. He's going to put his time in. He takes the game very seriously. He he has a legendary work ethic in terms of waking up extremely early, you know, two, three, four workouts a day, working on his touch, working on his body, conditioning, his shooting. Um, one of the more physical players in the league both ways gets to the free throw line. So right away he helps them in terms of his approach to the game, his defensive presence, and his Interior finishing along with, you know, how he plays, picking rolls, being able to shoot threes, adding that shooter uh, to the lineup. Obviously, you lose two shooters, but you add a guy who's shooting, you know, 
38, 40% from three on the year, shooting 49, 50% in most of the games uh, throughout the season. So I think playing with Simmons is going to be tough because Simmons obviously likes to have the ball in his hands. Embiid likes to have the ball in his hands down a stretch of games. And Jimmy's a guy who's been successful with the ball in his hands. But I think after a few games, they'll figure out the continuity of it. I think he'll kind of fall back a little bit and see how they do things before he really inserts himself and his presence in the game. But he's so efficient that he doesn't need a lot of touches to be successful. Yeah, obviously this is a uh, a short and long-term play, and it's very, very expensive to compete with, uh, whether it's Boston, uh, whether it's the Warriors. If you, if you want to be a contender in this league, you're going to have to spend a lot of money, and, and this is a perfect example of that because um, if they were to re-sign him and give him a potentially a five-year, $190 million max, that's three potential max guys. And um, I, I think... They they obviously don't make this move. Alton Brand doesn't make this move if he's not very confident that uh, Butler will re-sign long-term. You talked about his efficiency, over 51% effective field goal. It is worth noting that he has logged the the lowest free-throw rate of his career, and that could be a byproduct of a situation in Minnesota. Um, But he's only 29. He is a fantastic two-way player, and Philadelphia, to me, just got a lot better, especially when you consider that at one point, we thought the asking price for Butler in Minnesota was four number ones. And I like Sarge. I like Covington. But um, they did not have to give up Philadelphia anywhere near what we originally thought. So this feels like a win for the Sixers. Yeah, definitely a win, especially from a long-term standpoint, like you said before. Now you potentially have three max players under contract in the primes of their careers, and you have a number one pick who's still figuring things out but has the potential to be another very, very good and effective player in this league. You obviously have shooters and J.J. Redick around them. You have some guys off the bench that are younger that are able to knock down shots. You have a a solid foundation to build on going forward. And I think Elvin Brand is doing a good job in showing that he knows exactly what he's doing. Having played in the league for a long time and, and being a forward thinker, he's able to kind of figure out what they need to be successful in the playoffs. Yeah. And it, it is worth noting um, that even with that cap hold, which is about $31 million for Butler, the Sixers still should have about $19 million in cap room next summer per ESPN. So um, in theory, they still should have an opportunity to go out and get another player or two. So I, I like the move for Philadelphia. Obviously, it was very dysfunctional in Minnesota, and now the, the Wolves can really build around Wiggins and Towns and try to identify somebody else in the draft, perhaps. But um, another move that we saw was, well, I guess not a move yet, is Carmelo. And I wonder, and we've talked about this a little bit, has he been scapegoated? And is it unfair the way that we are, as at least a media portraying Carmelo in uh, in Houston? I think he's definitely being scapegoated in this situation. You know, having known Carmelo and spent some time with him in the summertime, I know what type of person he is. I know how seriously he takes his craft from a individual development standpoint, working on his game, getting to his spots. Uh, he's not having a bad year. He's playing 29 minutes a game. He's one of the most effective players in the league from the mid-post this season based on statistics and how efficient he's been scoring the ball in the mid-post, taking advantage of matchups. But I think the Houston Rockets have a lot of, a lot of other problems. They've had injuries. James Harden has missed games. Chris Paul has been suspended and missed games. He's he's battling some tendonitis in his right elbow, his shooting elbow. Um, Obviously, you look at the scheduling, what's happened so far this season. They're not shooting the ball well. Eric Gordon's shooting 37 38% from the field. CP's at 40% from the field. And James is shooting his lowest field goal percentage since his rookie season. So they're not making shots. 
They've had some injuries, some guys in and out of the lineup. James Ennis has been hurt. You lose Trevor Reza, a great defender. You lose Mbamute, another great defender. And you add in some younger pieces and and Carmelo, who's been in and out of the lineup. And you, you try to figure out what's going on. They're not defending and they're not making shots. So it's really hard to win games when you're in the bottom of the NBA defensively and your best players aren't performing to their to their ceiling. I think CP can play a lot better and he's starting to, you know, overcome some shooting struggles and overcome the tendonitis issues in his right elbow. He had a great game the other night. James Harden goes off for 40 the other night. So it's only a matter of time before things start to, you know, kind of come full circle. Law of averages will balance things out. Eric Gordon's not going to shoot 38% for the season because he's too good of a player. But I think that the fact that they've noticed this early enough that maybe Melo's not a good fit, maybe he's not happy with the circumstances of the situation, maybe he feels like uh, he just wants a a fresh start. You know, we're not sure what's going on here, but I think it's only a matter of time before uh, he takes his talents elsewhere. And I think a sleeper in this situation would probably be the Miami Heat. Interesting, because that was a team that was interested in him before he ultimately went to Houston. And, and I think the reason that would make sense is because Pat Riley is going to get him in the best shape of his life. He won't have to play um, perhaps as many minutes, but he'll get he'll still get 25-plus. They have young pieces, but they definitely need more scoring, and, and he could fill that role. I think the, the reason it's not working, at least thus far, in Houston is because he's just not shooting the three. You know, he's under 33% from three, and that's that's the concern. Um, and it would be the lowest percentage uh, that he shot from three since 07. And so, uh, or since uh, 2010, I should say. I'm sorry. So if, if, he, if he could find a way to get that up to the high 30s, then suddenly his value in Houston, specifically in that offense, is is more important. But, but he just hasn't been able to connect from distance. And really the whole team hasn't. You talked about some of the struggles with Gordon and, and James, th- th- these are concerns, but um, I-, I still think Carmelo could find a way to contribute. Maybe it's on Houston, but a team like Miami uh, with a lot of young guys. And, and, and you know, th- there's no question that he can still score. It's just the fit. And that's why with Houston, it hasn't been a fit because he's not able to spread the floor. Uh, like, for instance, somebody like Trevor Ariza last year, uh, who was a great corner three-point shooter, catch and shoot, one dribble pull up. And we just haven't seen that from Melo. But but to be clear, you you still think that he can he can have a, a really positive role. I absolutely think he can still have a positive role. I think he can still help some teams out depending on what they're looking for. Uh, obviously, like I said before, I think the Miami Heat are a team. Obviously, his relationship and friendship with D Wade and Bron uh, automatically links him to LA. I'm not sure if they want to bring in another wing though with. Uh, how crowded that lineup is right now. We're trying to figure out Ingram's minutes, trying to figure out how much Kuzma plays. They like Josh Josh Hart a lot, uh, another young talent who's able to play both sides of the ball. So I'm not sure how that works in L.A., but based on the circumstances, Miami Heat may be looking for another wing to, to produce, uh, give them that bench scoring or whatever scoring they may, may be looking for. Obviously, D-Wade just had a baby, so he's been away from the team with his daughter, with the birth of his uh, most recent daughter. Shout out to D-Wade. Happy for you, man. Uh, having your baby, bringing another one into this world and being able to be the father of a daughter is something special. So congrats. But outside of that, I'm not sure what other teams may be interested. Maybe New Orleans, maybe some other teams in the Western Conference may take a peek at him depending on their lineup structure and what they're looking for. But I think he's a better shooter than 33%. 
I think that Houston's offense is takes time to adjust. There's a lot of one-on-one play, isolation. It's not a free-flowing offense to where a lot of players touch the ball. Uh, James controls the offense, CP controls the offense, and they kind of control who scores. And you have to be a really, really unique score or unique shooter to be able to not touch the ball for three, four minutes and then knock down a three. It's hard to do, especially when you're accustomed to touching the ball every play. So that's got to be an adjustment process for Melo, you know, going from averaging 25 points a game two years ago to spotting up in the corner and kind of depending on other people to pass him the ball. I mean, it has to be, it has to be tough adjusting to that role where he's not necessarily playing to all his strengths. He's not getting post-ups. He's not getting left elbow, left logo isolation as much as he's accustomed to. Yeah, and also as a team, this is why I don't think it's fair to – to just blame Carmelo because going back to what we were saying earlier, and obviously guys like MCW and Hartenstein, these guys are playing maybe more minutes than the Rockets anticipated. But as a team, they're not shooting well. Uh, they're 29th in points per game, 25th in three-point percentage. And to just say, oh, it's Carmelo's fault is not fair. And I think also given the success they had last year being one game away and perhaps a Chris Paul hamstring away from going to the finals against Cleveland, now that the bar for Houston is set so high that the only thing they can do is go back to the like if they don't go back to the finals or back to the Western Conference finals then it's a disappointing year for them and and they've you know that's a byproduct of success and a lot of teams uh, we've seen have not been able to handle that in the past whether it's been the Clippers um, the Raptors not being able to sustain it in the in the in the postseason so. There's a, there's a growth period for the Rockets now, and it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. But I, I, I think it's pretty clear that Carmelo's time in Houston is over. Um, and, I, and I'm with you. Uh, I, I think he can still help a team. But um, clearly with Houston, not being able to make threes has been, a, has been an issue. Um, you know, I, I also wonder for you, just a quick, a quick note with, with L.A., um, were you – you know, Tyson Chandler got bought out very early by Phoenix, um, less than 10 games in, and he's they're 3-0 since they've had him. He made a great block to save the game against Trey Young and the Hawks last night. Um, you know, I've gotten to know Tyson pretty well, and he I think he's thrilled to be back in L.A. where it all started for him going to Dominguez and have a role with LeBron to defend and rebound. Did you like that move? Yeah, I definitely liked the move. I thought it was smart. I, heard, I hear LeBron called in the favor to his good friend in Phoenix, and they were able to execute. James Jones. Yeah, they were able to execute and, and figure out a way to get him to L.A., but I like the energy he brings. I like his intensity, his the defensive uh, responsibility being placed on him, guarding the pick and roll, being a vocal leader, getting those tip-outs for extra possessions, being able to be a force in the paint, and just that veteran leader you have in the locker room that can bring energy to practice, communicate better effectively, uh, talking to JaVale McGee a lot because JaVale, although he's having a great season, this is the first time in his career he's played more than 26 minutes per game. So being used to that heavy minute load, how to communicate effectively, how to stay locked in and engaged throughout an entire game. But he's definitely changed their team. And as a lot of vets say, when you play around other vets, the game is easier. It's more fun. Communication's better flowing and you have a better understanding of exactly what needs to be done. The Lakers, um, you know, it's fascinating because we've talked so much about how long it's going to take them with LeBron to develop that chemistry and, you know, how does KCP fit in? Where is Lance's role? Rondo and Ball late in games. Um, you know, is Kuzma or Ingram the second option? It's There's just a lot of questions. But obviously you saw them firsthand recently. Do you feel like they figured it out yet, um, especially offensively? 
I think it's early. I think they're still figuring things out. Um, the difference between the last three games and the beginning of the season is that instead of them losing close games, they've won three close games in a row. Tyson Chandler gets a block to seal this game against the Atlanta Hawks. Tyson Chandler has to tip out against Minnesota to prevent them from getting the, uh, an extra possession. And then he gets a, a contest on Derrick Rose at the end of the game. Just those little plays, uh, execution where one possession sways the game down the stretch has been the difference. Early on in the season, they were just losing close games. And now they've won three in a row. So I think that's changed. But they still have to figure out rotations. They have to figure out who they want to play down the stretch of games. Do they play Rondo? Do they play Lonzo Ball? How many minutes does Kuz get? How many minutes does Josh Hart get? Uh, rotations for, from a big man standpoint. Figure out who shoots the technical free throws. There's just like a lot of little things that teams figure out over time. And that's where that continuity, that chemistry comes into play. But they, they're continuing to improve, and one thing's for certain. They have LeBron James, which means you always have a chance to win a game. And you have a lot of young talent. So I think they will continue to figure it out, but it's just going to take some time. And there's still 69, 69 games left, so there's plenty of time. CJ, your Browns got a big win, notching their third victory of the year. Beat Atlanta at home, Baker Mayfield. 17 of 20, 216, three scores, made a couple dime throws on the move, and he woke up saying, uh, he said he woke up feeling pretty dangerous uh, in the postgame presser. I thought that was very uh, telling of his day. What did you think of that? I thought it was a terrific win for the Brownies. Terrific win for the Brownies. Um, being able to beat a team like the Atlanta Falcons, who are on the cusp of potentially making the playoffs, they have a very, very good quarterback in Matt Ryan. Julio Jones on the outside, a strong defense. We were able to kind of slice and dice them. Baker only throwing three incompletions kind of shows you his efficiency, getting back to those Oklahoma days to where he's efficient, he's effective, he's making reads at the line of scrimmage, he's rolling, scrambling out, throwing across his body. And then we had a terrific running game. It's almost as if Chubb listens to the podcast because he felt disrespectful exactly. when you asked <laughs> me if I would take James Conner over him. And I simply told you, Time is of the essence. Be patient, understanding that the truth always comes to light, and the truth is coming to light right now. Franchise record for longest touchdown run in the history of the Browns organization. As you tweeted, not Jim Brown. 92 yards. He goes for 176 yards and uh, two total touchdowns. He was fantastic. And I think he was listening to the pod because, I mean, literally the week after we talked about how you would take Chubb over Connor, especially given the opportunity to be an offense like that. He explodes. So congratulations to you, Baker, Chubb, and uh, the city of Cleveland. Big day. Huge day, man. And I appreciate you recognizing that a win in Cleveland in November is rare. So we are very excited about it. We don't take these, these moments for granted. No, I ever. It was, it was, it was, an, it was the best one of the year. Most complete game of the year. Um, Really excited to introduce a new segment to pull up. Uh, we're calling it Play Breakdown, and from time to time we'll have CJ break down a play from, from around the league. It's going to be available on Twitter, and uh, it will be a lot of fun. And this week's play, CJ putting my man Dante DiVincenzo on skates. Uh, <laughs> CJ, what was your read on the floor? Well, I'm just trying to be aggressive, man. As I said before, whenever you have a rookie on you or a younger player or just anyone in general, you want to be aggressive and kind of attack and put the pressure on them. I had scored, a, I don't know, 17 points that quarter up to that point. And it was the end of the third quarter. 
coach called for a, a mid-pick and roll earlier, earlier in the game, and I told him, I don't need a screen. Uh, let me go one-on-one. It's more space that way, less help. And I think one of our assistant coaches, DV, was telling me, you know, keep going. He always kind of twists his wrist, like, turn it up, go to work. And I kind of looked at him and I said, I got you. And he was like, dice him up. He can't check you. So um, took a couple dribbles at half court. He was kind of pressing me a little bit, you know, trying to force me left. And once I drew contact, I, I got to about the left elbow and I kind of did a stop, like almost like I'm going to step back. And when I kind of stopped to get separation, he slipped or whatever the case may be. And uh, his elbow or whatever was on the ground. And I kind of hesitated and did a left or right, a high crossover to get a little bit closer because earlier in the game, I had hit him with a right to left crossover and he turned around in a circle and I missed the pull up. So I wanted to get a little bit closer to make sure I was going to finish this play off and got into the lane, got a nice uh, righty floater right over John Henson. And uh, the rest is history. But it's always funny when you make a crossover or something like that. Uh, trying to make the shot afterwards is usually the hardest part. I was uh, literally about to say that. As great of a move as it was, the floater over John Henson, who's a really good shot blocker, especially help side, that was uh, maybe just as impressive. Were you – like, did you have to – mentally say, like, stay focused, stay in the moment. You know what I mean? Because it's easy to just admire the work and then not finish. I just tried to get to my spot, get to a comfortable spot where I've gotten a lot of reps, two-foot two floaters in the middle of the lane, about seven to eight feet out is a very good shot for me just because I practice it every day, uh, making sure I get the right arc. And I actually missed a floater earlier in the game going baseline over Lopez. I tried to bank it in and missed it slightly short. So I just tried to make sure I got the right arc on it. But it's crazy. When you're in the moment, you just go out there and hoop, man. You don't really think about making mistakes. You don't really think about, like, what happens if you miss. You just try to, you know, let your instincts take over. And I think at that moment, I heard the crowd and the reaction you know, once he fell down. And then I was just thinking, finish him. Kind of like Mortal Kombat. Finish him. <laughs> Finish him. <laughs> or wait, Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter? Adiukin. Adiukin. <laughs> um, did you ever see him? So did you actually see him on the cross? Did you see him hit the hit the deck? How, like what was the process there? When I stepped back with the left foot and Hezzy, I seen him slip and then my eyes immediately went to the to the second unit, like to see where the defense was at, see where the help was coming from. And I kind of glanced at him when I went left to right, and I was like, oh, he's down. So I can kind of change direction and, and get a little bit closer and uh, get me a better shot off. And uh, you definitely, like when someone falls like that in front of you, you definitely see it, especially if it's, you know, if you change courses. Like I, I went left to right so I could see him, and then I kind of went past him, like right around him as he was on the ground. Again, not something I've ever experienced, so I'm just – Trying to learn as we go here. Hey man, you'll get there, man, for sure. You keep working out. Maybe you'll get. Maybe you'll sham god somebody and make them fall like that. I was just gonna say. You know how I said I need the sham god from CJ. This actually, this was better than the sham than the sham god. This was. I've seen the move a hundred times. It, you know, I think it gets better every time, especially because the floater. And I've seen you do that floater a thousand times in the gym, uh, from every possible angle, and it's cool when it. Like you said, you you get reps from a certain spot with a certain shot, and you have the touch and the feel in the moment to uh, to make the bucket. So very nice. I appreciate it, man. Glad we could have this segment. Looking forward to segments just like this in the future. We've got more pull up in a minute, but first I want to talk about Eero. Eero Plus is designed to provide simple, reliable security that defends all your home's devices against a growing number of threats 
such as malware, spyware, phishing attacks, as well as unsuitable content. The combination of Eero with Eero Plus provides complete protection for your network and all the devices and those who use them as they connect to the internet. With Eero, you get total network protection. Eero Plus offers the ability to block malicious and unwanted content across your entire network. You get advanced security. By checking the sites you visit against a database of millions of known threats, Eero Plus prevents you from accidentally visiting malicious sites without slowing anything down. Content blocking. Eero Plus automatically tags sites that contain violent, illegal, or adult content, so you can choose what your kids can and cannot visit right in the Eero app. Ad blocking. Get rid of annoying ads and pop-ups on all your devices. Ad blocking also improves load times for ad-heavy sites so you can browse and stream faster than ever before. Plus, third-party security apps, VPN protection from Encrypt.me, password management from 1Password, antivirus software from Malwarebytes. With Eero, you can install an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home in just a few minutes. Simply download the Eero app on your iOS or Android devices, and it'll walk you through each step of the process. It's quick, easy, and painless. And Eero has incredible customer support. Their experts will talk you through everything and give you advice on how many Eros are right for your home, which I love. It's easy and prevents tons of tech headaches. Never think about Wi-Fi again. Get $100 off the Eero base unit and two Beacons package and one year of Eero Plus. Visit Eero.com backslash pull up and at checkout enter pull up. Without further ado, I want to welcome a special guest. My favorite part of the show is when I read the bios of the guests coming in. So I'm going to start with Chicago MC, filmmaker, actor, writer, television, activist, Grammys, Talking about a guy who does a little bit of everything. 2015 Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song, Academy Award for Best Original Song for his song Glory in the 2014 film Selma. He co-starred in that film as well as the civil rights movement leader James Bevel. Without further ado, I want to welcome formerly known as Common Sense, Common, a.k.a. Rashid Lynn. Appreciate you coming on the Pull Up Pod, man. Great to be here, man. Great to be here, CJ. Much love, y'all. Nah, I appreciate you taking the time, man. I know how busy life can get around this time, man. So we're gonna we're gonna take it back to your childhood a little bit. We're gonna start with the childhood. Obviously, you were raised by an educator, and you were raised by uh, a man who played in the ABA and then did some stuff with youth in terms of coaching development. Walk me through life uh, as a youngster growing up in Chicago. You know, w- wanting to be an MC. How did education kind of play a role in? your career trajectory? Well, you know, I grew up with my mother and, and my father who played in the ABA. They they separated when I was really like one and a half. But my mother played a real prominent role in my life, being a teacher, being an educator. Um, she gave me that foundation to make sure that like, not only was it just like, okay, be academic, but also just have discipline and like, and, and she kind of set a foundation for me to, start thinking about goals and visions for myself. And my father, though, you know, he wasn't physically in the home. We still built a great relationship, and he kind of gave me – it was a good balance because he gave me the side of, you know, he had been through different trials in his life, and, and you know, he gave me that raw, real side of things. And at the same token, he was a spiritual human being, and so was my mother, uh, so is my mother. So I grew up really with a good sense of – who I am as a as a black man as a, as a God 
godchild, as uh, a person who was inspiring to be something to shoot. I wanted, I wanted to hoop. To be honest, like my my own goal initially was to be a hooper, but I kind of got into to music around the same time. And um, you know, playing high school, I played high school ball and got injured, and I kind of like veered the way towards um, towards music more. I started doing more with music. Which was a blessing in disguise. I wouldn't go make it as far as these guys, you know, in the league or nothing. But you know, everything happens the way it's supposed to. So I'm grateful for all the, you know, the things that I've experienced and you know the foundation I was given. No, that's dope, man. I definitely can relate to parents getting divorced early on. My parents divorced when I was three years old, but you know, dad was around. Mom raised me. You know, dad made sure he his presence was felt going to games and just kind of showing you what life was like outside of being raised by a woman. There's nothing like being raised by your mom. You always love your mom to death, but you always need that fatherly advice at times when you're going through something, or a big brother, whatever the case may be. So I can definitely relate to that. But Yeah, because I wanted, I wanted a big brother. Thank God I, you know, I had my god brother, and I had some guys around the neighborhood who were like big brothers. Because you need that, you know, as young men, we need that little male figure. You know, and, and I had, good enough, I had coaches. Like, my uncle was, coaching my bitty basketball team and even some of the men who are coaches they were good examples for us like at being like what it is to be a man and teaching us you know team camaraderie and just you know respect for self so i truly you know understand and relate to what you're saying too did you where'd you grow up initially though yeah i'm from canton ohio so i was born and raised in canton ohio um 15 minutes from akron not not too far from where Bron grew up at in st v and uh, I had a big brother. I love my big brother to death. Without him, I don't know where I would be at, honestly, just based on trajectory, like how stuff goes in the neighborhood where you can go left or right. I had his guidance and his influence, and, yeah. and I, that made all the difference in my life because no matter how good your parents are, they're not always around. Like They're not, they not there when you get home from school sometimes, or they're not there when you're in the neighborhood you know, ho- hooping it and a fight breaks out. Yeah, that's exactly it. So you understand your big brother was, one of them guiding angels for you, basically. Yeah, he kept me out of trouble. He was the one that did everything the right way, and I was the one that was going to experiment. Like, if there was a chance of going left, I was the one that was going to go left, and he was going to pull me right. Like, come on, little homie. Like, this is how you got to live. This is the things you need to do. Do your homework. Yeah. Get your shots up. So I owe him a lot to my success, and, and that's why we're best friends to this day. But looking at your high school career... I read your bio, man. You, you're an impressive dude, man. But you went to Luther, you went to Luther High School in Chicago, and, and two of your friends formed CDR uh, Rap Trio, and you guys follow acts such as NWA, Big Daddy Kane, things of that nature. And you actually debuted in 1992 with an album, "Can I Borrow a Dollar?" I just want to let you know that you came out with an album in '92. I was born in '91. <laughs> so that tells you how. Damn. <laughs> so that tells you how how long you've been successful. You've been successful for a long time, man, and, and that's that's crazy. So the fact that you were opening up for NWA, did you understand, you know, kind of like where life was going to take you early on? You know, you said you wanted to hoop. You worked for the Bulls a little bit early on in your life with some of your friends. You got a taste of that life. You hooped in col- in high school, got hurt, ended up going to college. Like, at what point did you think, like? Okay, I'm going to pivot now. I'm going to do music. I'm going to get myself involved in acting. I'm going to really take advantage of my platform. I'm going to I'm going to be outspoken. I'm going to speak out on certain issues that are going on in the world. At what point did you kind of make a decision? This is the life I'm going to live. Yeah. Well, it kind of was a evolution because you know when I first was like, okay, I'm going to rap and like I really want to do 
you know, I want to rhyme as a career. Like, this is something I really passionately want to do. It was, you know, because I just love hip-hop culture. I was in the breakdance and I was in the writing. I just loved the culture. It spoke to me. And, and, and rap was just a way for me to express myself in ways that I really honestly wouldn't do in everyday life. You know, it was like in hip-hop, I could write my songs and it, I could talk about how great I was. You know, like all the things that, you know, sometimes we afraid to do, I got to express through the arts. But it kind of evolved as I got signed. I got my first deal. It, was, it wasn't like I came out and just blew up. It was one of those things where I was on the underground hip-hop scene, and it was a gradual thing of me just grinding it out and figuring out ways and learning, and then I started to develop my own voice. Like, one thing I feel like any artist has to do, and you may feel this way too, CJ, about just hooping, like, uh, you got to find your, your voice, your style, what it, you know, what it is, you, like, who you are in this world, really. And I think, you know, you're always learning about yourself. You're always growing and evolving. But I started to learn that, like, as I told my own personal stories and honest stories, and I, and I really told this Chicago Southside boy-like stories, uh, it related to a lot of human beings. And, I, and at that point, I started, you know, being called a socially conscious artist, which I really was just telling my stories and telling what I've seen. And then, you know, it, it was a point where this, this dude came up to me because I did this song about abortion. And this dude came up to me and was like, man, your song made me decide to have my child. And at that point, I was really like, wow, this music really has an effect upon people's lives. And I kind of took it upon myself to say, I got to be responsible with it. Not, not That don't mean I would, you know, won't tell the truth or won't have fun or won't, you know, just talk shit when I need to talk shit. It's just, you know, it's still all, all of that is embodied in who I am. But I just felt that I need to use the microphone for a positive thing and use it like to do, to do good out in the world. So that's kind of where it evolved to. And then eventually I was like, I can't just speak it and rap it. I got to do it. And that, you know, all that's been a process. I'm continuing to learn and grow and, and find out more things I can do. And it's always more work to do. Right. You know? Right. Facts. But that's a dope story. That's a dope antidote, man. Somebody really told you that your song influenced them enough for them to, to have their child. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, man. A, you know, when you get those, you, you know, you, you have different ones, but that one really affected me, like, because, man, that's life coming into the world. And you're like, man, I'm just really rapping about the situation I've been through. But because you understand now that people can see and see some of the things that you've been through and relate to it, and it may affect the way they, the decisions they make, you're like, man. I just was like, man, I, I grew up around a, crazy things and positive things. So I was like choosing to, to rap about the positive parts of the hood or the way we overcome the struggles. I, it wasn't like I was ignoring the struggles. I was acknowledging the struggle, but just saying, man, we warriors for coming through this. We made it through. Just like you said, look, you know, times you went left, but you know, you had somebody to pull you out of that. It's like, I was just saying, Hey man, we, we go left sometimes, but we, we come out of this on top. And that's, that's really been my whole like my whole like direction when it comes to, to the work I do. Rashid, as you've developed your career and had more and more success, um, whether it's in music or acting, um, do you feel even more of a responsibility with social activism, um, given your platform and ability to affect change? Yeah, I felt I started feeling like so, and I was feeling like the more 
success I got, the more I had to represent uh, black people, like positive energy. Like I had to basically, I was I was getting a seat at the table. I get a seat at the table. That mean I got to speak up, and that's what I felt. I feel like to this point, like because you know it was it was one thing speaking to to the communities in the inner cities. And, and just saying, hey, y'all, we're going to lift ourselves up and do what we have to do. But then to, to be able to sit down and talk with people who are, who don't know about the struggle, like, or, or not, they don't come in the proximity of the struggle. You know, Brian Stevenson always be saying, you got to get in the proximity of things. And it's like, some people don't, don't do it and they don't have the access to do it. So I felt like I had to represent for the people who are often unheard, the people who are overlooked or maybe judged. So yeah, I did feel more responsibility. The the more awards, the bigger things got, the the you know, the more responsibility I have. It's like my duty. It's that quote from Nina Simone when she says the duty of the artist to reflect the times and I feel like that's what my duty is. CJ, do you know who Brian Stevenson is? Because he's really worth looking at. He he's an incredible story. He wrote the book Just Mercy, which I would encourage all of our listeners to read. Um he's a Harvard educated lawyer who turned down offers from every major law firm in the country to go back to Montgomery. And now he tries uh, men who were wrongfully convicted of murder and are on death row. It's an incredible story, and uh, he is a very special man. Wow, I, didn't, I, I, didn't, I, I had no idea. No, I'm going to have to look him up. This dude is, man, he like a brilliant dude. Like, he like just, he opened this, this memorial that's like a, lynch, a lynching memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. And it's beautiful, but it's painful. But he's just a, a leader when it comes to just thought and, and like, he's he doing the work. Actually, Michael B. Jordan and Jamie, Jamie um, Foxx did his movies for his book, Just Mercy, the book that Jordan was just talking about. Okay, I'm going to have to get the book. The book is incredible. He's so committed to it, and he acknowledges the history and where we're going as a society. Um, it's it, he, He's very special. R- Rashid, I'm, that's, that's the kind of, like, to me – that's the kind of impact that you're having um, in your own, within your own art form. So I, I just want to say I appreciate that. Give thanks, yo. Like, I mean, yeah, I, I feel like I got to do my part. I feel like, you know, it, 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 for me, it's like, yo, if you're giving something, you got to be able to give back. Like, and, and that's just, to me, the natural ways of the universe. And it's like not, I don't think like nobody, I don't feel like, I'm greater than anybody else. Like, the, or Brian Stevenson ain't greater than any, none of us. We, you know, we all have our gifts and talents and our purpose. So I just want to do my purpose, man, and, and keep, you know, keep it moving and enjoy life. No, I think you're doing that and some, man. I think you're doing a tremendous job. And a lot of people look up to you, a lot of kids, a lot of grownups, just based on how you carry yourself, uh, how you educate yourself on certain matters, and then you dive right into them. So uh, I commend you. I've seen Selma. Uh, my homie told me about the hate you give, so I'm definitely going to be checking that out. But he he asked me a specific question. He wanted me to ask you how pivotal it was for you to play that role. Obviously, what's going on in America, we've seen a lot of situations where cops are killing unarmed black men, unarmed minorities. We obviously had the mass shootings that are happening now. The state of America is in a bit of a crisis, not just from the situation with who's in the Oval Office, but what's happening, you know, on a day-to-day basis. So how how, how did that role kind of impact your life? Um, obviously playing the role, but then just understanding 
you know, you you or her uncle, she was killed by a cop. There's a lot of, that goes into that. And just kind of seeing what's happening in America right now, he wanted me to ask you, you know, what it was like to play that role and kind of be in that position. Well, you know, characters that I take on, they help me to get better understanding for who that person is or somebody that works that job or, you know, it just get, creates a compassion that is really unique because as an actor, you have to walk in the shoes and live in the shoes of other human beings. Being that I was playing a black police officer in a, in a film um, where the the starter of the of the film, the, the leading young lady, Amanda, Amanda Lestenberg, her friend, her best friend was killed right in front of her by a police. And I'm her uncle who's a father figure to her. It was a really complex, like, situation I have to deal with. I think it, it really helped me to understand that I don't want to generalize all police um, officer and law enforcement. But I still recognize, and as you said, I've been on the side of like, hey, these are unarmed young men and women being shot down in the streets. We got to figure a better way, a better system. And I know every police is not bad, but somebody you know, on on the police force running the, the city got to figure out ways. And we do, too, as communities, got to offer what we can offer to, to, to heal that situation. So for me, it gave me a, a lot of insight um, on playing this character. And I know and, and I recognize, you know, that everything is in one side. It, it almost is like, you know, when you sit down and try to, come to a peace treaty, I kind of got to hear from the side of the police officers by playing this police officer. Um, and, you know, within the process as an actor, I study and talk to, to police officers during that time. And, you know, I, obviously every person is not the same, you know, it's like every basketball player is not the same. So, it's, you know, neither is every actor. So I just kind of got into that, the heart and the soul of what that is and what that job would be like. And it was challenging. And when I think about the crisis that we're going through now in America, I feel like it's, it's in many ways it's empowering for us to be like, man, we can take control of our destiny and we got to do something. More people are, are, are activated and looking to do like positive things out in the world, whether they said I'm going out and voting or I'm finding something within the communities that I can do, or I'm just going to just be, try to be a better person because there's so much negativity out there and so many ill things happening that I feel like these crises are, are bringing out the best in some people. And uh, I hope it bring out the best in all of us that we can get, you know, to the place where, where we heal from all the craziness that's going on because it is some craziness out there. But I think positive about it. Rashid, you've told me in the past that acting is, is a lot harder than you probably thought or anticipated it would have been. And, you know, obviously being on set for hours, being around other professionals, people that have a lot more experience. Can you just elaborate more on that and how you've um, developed your own confidence and style within that space? Right. You know, I always loved films and theater as a kid growing up, but I never participated in it. And when I decided to act, I just went to class first. That came like I didn't start acting until I was till I was 27 years old. That, that's, that's your age, right? Probably about 27. I was 27. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm 27. Yeah, I started. I knew when you said 91. <laughs> I was like, dang, 27. Okay. So um, I started I started, I started. acting at that, around that time. And what, what happened, Jordan, for me was I was going to class and it was just a liberating thing. It's just a way for me to be creative. I was 
seeking out new ways to be a creative artist and acting was something that I was passionate about and loved. It felt like my trajectory was I could be something great in it eventually. And I'm working towards those things. But so when um, I, I got on my first audition that, that I got a call back on, it was like a new world. Then I eventually got the role. It was a movie called Smoking Aces. And getting on set was a whole new experience because you act in class and you work on these different scenes and plays and different things. But on set acting is a whole different thing. You got to hit marks. You got to, you got to, you do different takes from, from far out, the uh, angle from, you know, a wide angle. And then you go closer. You, you might start, you know, you start a movie at the end of the movie or even in the middle. Um, you might, that might be your first day of shooting is in the middle of the movie. So, excuse me, it's a lot of uh, different things that you learn and you learn on each set. That's the beautiful, the, the thing I love about acting is I'm always consistently learning. And that's why I want to do it. Like, I want to do it to, I'm like Morgan Freeman's age, you know, and, I, you know, those cats, you see this acting in, in the old ages because I love it that much. But the truth is, it is challenging. And, I, you know, I've been able to work with, like, Angelina Jolie, Denzel, Morgan Freeman. You know, I just worked with Jessica Chastain on this movie. And, and it's like, you learn from each and all those great people and you kind of just be humble, but you also recognize that like, Hey, I'm, I'm on in this scene with you. I got to deliver. And I guess, you know, I guess it's no different than when we, you know, like Jordan, you get on the court playing with somebody, you, even if they're great, you still don't be like, yo, I'm about to play my game. So that's how I feel about it. Uh, CJ, for you, was it being on the floor with someone like Kobe and actually matching up against him? Yeah, you have a respect for him, but understanding that I'm here too. Yeah. Like, there's a reason why I'm here, and I think that's probably how you feel. Like, there's a reason why I'm on set with you. Yeah. There's a reason why I'm in this movie. Like, I know I know what I'm doing too. Yeah. Who was, yo, CJ, who was your, uh, like, who was probably the biggest, like, basketball influence or, you know, like, somebody you was like, man, I love his game the most? Growing up for, growing up for me, it was Allen Iverson because he was, you know, Six foot, slender, crossover. Yeah. He did things his way. You know what I'm saying? He had that swag, that border, like arrogance to where it's like he's a humble dude, but he's cocky on the court and he's confident. I had braids. I wore number three. I had the sleeves. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like that was that was my that was my guy. Like AI. Like I want to be AI. AI cross. You know what I'm saying? And then as you get older, like obviously Kobe Kobe became Kobe. And when you start shooting in the trash can, you go from saying Mike and he goes from saying Kobe. You know what I'm saying? That's when you kind of like go through those transitions of AI retire. And then I get to play against Kobe before he retires. And I get to talk to Kobe. And that's when it was like, man. But the, I think the ultimate icing on the cake is when I met Jordan in person for the first time. And I'm just like sitting here like, what's up, man? Mr. Jordan, you know what I'm saying? I'm CJ. He's like, I know who you are. And I'm like, damn, Mike knows who I am. Like, this is crazy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's when... Life kind of came full circle for me where I was like, this dude, I wear this dude's shoes. I stood in line for these shoes, and this man knows who I am. And I think that was a time where I was like, wow, like this life is life is really whatever you want it to be. Like, it's crazy. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy because, you know, once Mike knows who you are, it's like, man, that's the greatest, the greatest to do it. Like, being like, okay, I know who you are. Like like you say, you grew up wearing the shoes and just the imp- the influence and impact he's had on the game is, but I gotta say, AI. What was dope about AI too was AI, like, kind of changed the culture. AI brought like hip hop culture to 
to basketball in a way. Like, you know, he was like wearing the cornrows. Not that that was only hip hop, but it was just, you know, it was us. It was, he reflected us. He wasn't changing it up for nobody. He brought the tattoos and yeah, all that. So I understand what you're saying about AI. Yeah, to have Mike recognize you as a, that's the, that's another level. Boy. Man, I'll, I'll never forget it. Man, I was with my fiance and she was my girlfriend at the time, and she was like, "I think that's Michael Jordan," and I'm like, "Yeah, it is," but I ain't gonna say nothing. And she's like, "Nah, you gotta say what's up." So I'm like, "All right, I'm gonna say what's up and just try to be like cool about it because I ain't want like you know what I'm saying people probably sweat him all the time and he probably get people coming up to him. I was like, I wasn't trying to press him, but I just wanted him to know that I was a fan. Like, like I love your game. Like, you you helped me play basketball. Like, your story is a part of my life, man. So, yeah. but you growing up in Chicago, tell me about your love for the Bulls. You what you worked for the for the Bulls organization. Was that during the Michael Jordan era? Yeah, I was there. You know, like I worked. I was a ball boy when Mike first came, and I can remember his first exhibition game. Like he was playing in his radio. He had this red radio and Rod Thorne. Was the was the the um the general manager for the Bulls and he was playing this music like kind of loud. He was playing Houdini, friend, and um you know it was the old hip hop joint. He was playing that joint and he had it loud. And they told him he couldn't play his music. They was like, Nah, you can't play that like that. Like in here, man. After his first game exhibition, they was like, Man, you can play whatever you want. See that dude? Like he killed. Like first game exhibition game. Like. And from then, you know, he was always cool. Like, he was just a cool dude. He, you know, he knew he was Mike, but he was cool. Like, I used to get his gym shoes. I had his gym I had some of the, some of the first mics. He signed them, and I, I gave them to my father. So my father had them. But my father passed, but, but um, you, you know, he gave them to my sister um, at this point, you know. But it was, like, incredible to have, you know, Jordan's. I used to actually sell Jordan sneakers. To, to some of, you know, my teachers and different stuff. If I'd only known, you know, back then I was just just like, okay, I'm going to sell these, these gym shoes. But I, should, I mean, I, if I'd have kept all those joints, it would have been crazy. Oh, that's dope. Were those the ones with the, with the Nike logo? Yeah, those are the ones. The, those are the Mike's ones, you know, those red, white, and black ones. Yeah. Those, you know, the, the first ones he had. Yeah, those were dope. And I even yeah. got pictures of me with his first, like, warm-up suit. Like uh, he had a like Air Jordan warm-up suit, dude. He came on the on the scene. We was like, you know, that was it. like he blew up Chicago to he blew our minds because it was he had commercials first. He had local commercials for Chevy, then he started coming with Nike commercials, and it just was like we had never seen anybody this at this level, you know. Like, just he changed the league, man. He brought so much money. They said when he was playing, he changed the economy, like. He was bringing so much money to to a lot of cities and, and the NBA and just our city. You know, man, we we forever grateful that Mike played in Chicago. And and to this day, yo, he saw me. He didn't know. He, he didn't remember I was a ball boy until somebody told him. But we, I, I, I played in in this celebrity game, one of the celebrity hoop games. And and he and I saw him after. And he was like, "Yo, Common, I saw you in that in the celebrity game." He's like, you need to stick to acting and rapping. <laughs> I was like, oh, you focus. Oh, you know what, though? If Michael Jordan tells you you can't hoop, that's okay. Yeah, exactly. I ain't taking too, too to heart. I mean, it's all good. I mean, you know, look, let's face it. We are, you know, there's it's so many artists y'all know that, that have hoop genes. And then, you know, there's some hoopers that, that love to rhyme, like, like, I, I got to say, your God damn could really rhyme. I got to I got to. I gotta, 
he that dude could rap. He to me, he was the best dude that I heard like that was an athlete rhyming. Like he really could rap. Like I would just separate him and be like, yo, he you know he can rhyme. Yeah, that's my guy. He really has bars, and he been the crazy part is he's been writing since since he was like younger, since he was a kid. He's always been writing stuff, and as he got older, he was like, "Yo, I'm gonna put I'm gonna put some of this out." And when we were flying, he was writing stuff. He's like, "Yo, see, I'm gonna put an album out," and I'm like, "What?" Like I didn't even know he rapped. Yeah. He's like, "Yo, I'm gonna put an album out," and then he let me hear something something he made, and I was like, "I was like, bro, you got bars. Like you really be bodying this stuff with a with a clear message. Like you got a subject." You got a message, and you're not cursing. I was like, I was like, people are gonna love this. Yeah, that dude, he he bring it. What's up? What's some of the artists that, that you that you um, grew up listening to? Man, see, I I'm an old soul, man. So growing up around the house, you know, having a, having a single parent mother, she playing old school slaps. You know, what I'm saying Aretha Franklin. I'm hearing all the Teddy P, the Isley Brothers, the Gap Band, Frankie Beverly, Shaka Khan. Damn. You know what I'm Earth, Wind, and Fire. Damn. Like, that's the stuff I grew up listening to Al Green, the Stylistics, Brother Johnson, the Whispers, Luther Vandraw. Like, I could go on and on. Like, that's that's what I'm listening to before I go play now. Like, I'll, I'll listen to some, you know, some Turn Me Up, some Ratchet stuff every now and then, but I'm more of an R&B guy. So, like, Bobby Womack, like, like if you put the if you put if you put Pandora on or something on in my house, you gonna hear some Bobby Caldwell. You gonna hear a little bit of everything. Like my dad know all the songs, Cooling the Gang, all of that. That's that's my stuff. Like me, D. A lot of us is old souls, man. Just based on growing up, your parents. My dad listening to old school. My aunties listening to old school with a record player. She still got a record player to this day. So we playing all that. That old soul music where they're really talking about something. There's really some substance in everything they're saying. That, oh, man, that's what I grew up listening to, to be honest. Shaka Khan, Minnie Ripperton. Man, you named Bobby Caldwell. That's crazy. Like, that, he's not somebody everybody would always know, but Earth, Wind, and Fire, all of them, man. And the crazy part, my parents didn't even, didn't even, um, my mother wasn't playing a lot of music around the house, but my babysitter used to play music. So that's how I kind of got up on all that Earth, Wind, and Fire, Commodore, all that soul stuff. Yeah, it's crazy what you remember. Like, I remember my dad washing the car to some of these songs. And then when I hear them, it takes me back to, like, my grandma playing something in the house. And I'd be like, that's crazy. Like, they really, I listen to these songs so much. I know the words. Like, it'll come on, and I'll be like, I ain't heard this song in 15 years, and I know the words. That thing be ingrained. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's crazy what you process. Yeah, it's part of your DNA at that point. <laughs> I have to ask. Two questions. One, you performed at March for Our Lives, and obviously there's a lot of stuff going on right now with mass shootings. You know, we, we briefly touched upon, you know, like making America a better place, how we can continue to improve by going out and voting, doing stuff for the community. Obviously, there's the fires right now. Uh, so, you know, we appreciate the firemen out there, people who are working, you know, 24-7, not sleeping, continuing to help the community. But uh, being out in L.A., LeBron, some of those teams, I think the Milwaukee Bucks, they wore the enough shirts. How can we continue to kind of regulate gun control? How do we turn the tide? Like, what type of advice do you have to offer? Obviously, there's no one one remedy to kind of fix things, but I, I think it's always interesting to ask intellectuals and people who are, you know, of knowledge of certain situations and circumstances how we can improve. Well, I think we we have to... As, as we had to do in this midterm election, identify the people who are with gun control that are running for office. Because if 
the people running for office will help get certain policies changed. I, I just think, you know, I don't think anybody is saying you, you, you shouldn't have the right to have a gun, if you, but you should have, it, you should be checked for, for violence and mental things going on with you before you get an opportunity to, to have a gun, man. It's just like, yo, certain people are not equipped to have guns. They're not responsible enough or have, you know, issues going on. And these laws need to be set in stone so that, you know, within these communities, people who are dealing with mental health issues and, and are dealing, you know, with those type of problems don't have automatic weapons so they can just at any moment go and, you know, destroy lives and kill people. So I think us identifying policymakers who are for gun control, because that is one big step that can happen. I think another thing is we do have to, like, focus on mental health also and, like, really make sure within our communities we don't talk about mental health as much, but we do need to, to, to focus on that. And um, I think those are some of the things that we just have to do. And, like, those are two steps. As you said, I don't have all the solutions, but those are two things I know for sure if we – because there's a lot of politicians out there not, who are not – for like having all these guns out there. You know, it's a lot of politicians who are with gun control and they can create the laws that 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 we have to abide by. So I think those are the steps. Man. And we got to identify those politicians and support them. Yeah, I agree. I think controlling who's able to get their hands on certain weapons is is crucial. I'm, I'm a person who believes that you sh- you have a right to protect your household. You have a right to go to the gun range if you want to all that stuff, but being able to kind of regulate, you know, mentally ill or people who are, who, who just don't belong yeah. with a weapon. You shouldn't be able to possess a weapon or go purchase a weapon. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I know you're from Chicago, so I have to ask about Kanye. I'm, people probably ask you about Kanye all the time. So <laughs> uh, just kind of, <laughs> kind of where, where you're at with him because I, I love old Kanye, old Kanye's music. I've literally gotten arguments with people uh, trying to protect old Kanye's music because some people in the locker room don't want to play Kanye or, you know, based on some of the things that he said and done. But where are you at with Kanye? And have you ever had any type of political discussions with him or do you just kind of like let Kanye be Kanye? Well, you know, Kanye is a friend of mine. That's a brother of mine. So I treat him like I would any brother who I don't agree with. A lot of the things he's been saying, I don't agree with his political views at all. And I think that I have to acknowledge as a friend that he is dealing with some, you know, some issues that deal with mental health. And like, if you, I think if any of us just take a look and just say, like, really look at some of the times he's been feeling out like his, his thoughts, it doesn't, it's not from a centered place where I know Kanye It's not a centered place where it's like, he's in his right in the right state, right? And I feel like, honestly, this is a time where Kanye really should, you know, be taking care of himself. People around us, including myself, around him, including myself, should be, like, making sure he's getting the proper treatment and proper things that he needs for his life. Um, And I understand why people be mad, but I look at it like, man, let's don't throw our brother away. Like, we ain't got to agree with him. We can emphatically be like, nope, we ain't with that. And come here, come on over here and sit down. But, you know, 
And I'm saying even why at certain points, Cass is like, man, I, I mean, I can toss it in the plate of music because it's hard to separate the the thoughts from from the music. But ultimately, man, I know him. and He's a good-hearted dude. He, he's, even within the past month and a half, he was in Chicago meeting with, with people trying to do things for the public schools. And, and, like, I mean, he went to my mother's house, and she cooked food for him, and, he, you know, everything was good. So I know he's just a good person. He's just dealing with some mental health issues that really, you know, like I can't explain it because I'm not a doctor, but I, I got more empathy and compassion for him because I know him, and, and I still rock his joints, and he's a genius. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. Right. I, I, love Kanye, I love Kanye's music personally. I always say you can't make a song like Jesus Walks and Dear Mama. And me not love you. Like those songs are classics and you could tell it was coming from his heart. It was coming from a place of, you know, he was he was he really had a solid foundation at that point and he was really in a good space mentally. And I think that in the black community, having a therapist, you know, going to see help, going to seek help is is frowned upon. I talked about this with a lot of other professional athletes. We gotta be more open to getting help, yeah. more open to communicating problems with people because in the black households growing up, what goes in this house stays in this house. You better not tell nobody nothing. You better put a smile on your face even when things ain't right. And it becomes a time where that, that becomes an issue. So we have to work on that as a, as a whole, as a, as a black community. And, and that's real. And then within the black community, it's looked at as a weakness. If you was like, I want to go see a therapist. We, you know, you get judged. Like, you, oh, man, you're supposed to be able to handle things yourself. It's look, but, man, that, we got to change the narrative on that. And like, as you said, from athletes to artists, to anybody that's out in the public eye, we got to set the tone to be like, yo, it's okay to, to go see a therapist. I know, shoot point blank, I have in my life, so I ain't afraid to say it and been like, yo, this is something that's been helpful to my life. It's helped me to be healthier mentally and spiritually and just overall. So, I mean, I think it's something that we, you know, when it comes specifically Kanye, that's something that we got to understand that he needed and, 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 and we need it too. So, I'm glad you were able to say that, and hopefully more people will come out and, and be able to acknowledge that if they need it. We, we've, we've talked about it a lot, Common. We, we, we've talked a lot about mental health and the importance of uh, talking about it openly, especially, I can imagine, as athletes or entertainers, and particularly in the African-American community. Is that something that, like, You've talked to kids about Rashid, um, whether it's yeah. in Chicago or anywhere else where you've yeah. encouraged them to be open. Is that a conversation that they're receptive to? Yeah, well, you know, with my foundation, the Common Ground Foundation, we take our kids to a camp away from Chicago, right? And we have this, this session where we sit down with the mentors, all the male mentors sit down with the young men, and all the, the, the female mentors, the lady mentors sit down with the young women. And within those sessions, man, we've had kids just open up about their lives and things they've gone through, talking about, you know, young men who talked about their father being shot and killed or their cousin and their cousin being shot and killed, and they're afraid to, they don't know how to deal with it. They don't want to go back and be trying to go kill somebody. So these are real traumatic experiences that any human being would need, you know, some type of mental health support. And the kids having that chance to open up has been a pathway to them being open to mental health support. And we are implementing that more in our programs. And I think, you know, hopefully we'll get that within a lot of the, the public school systems 
programs where they can have mental health, have meditation, you know, and yoga, mindfulness, all those things that, you know, a lot of people with, with money and, and access have those things and tools to deal with stress and, and, and anxiety and, and depression and, and trauma. Yeah, that's that's dope, man. I think that you know, being in the position we are today, we, we get exposed to so many new things, like you said before, mindfulness. I had no idea what mindfulness was until I got through three years of college. I was like, what does it mean to be mindful? And why do people go to hot yoga? And then I went and I was like, wow, this just this has changed my life. Changed how it changed how I looked at stuff and me and my team went on a mindfulness retreat because I hadn't really practiced it. I read, you know, different books that dealt with like kind of Buddhism and just pre- being present. Um, but the mindfulness retreat we went on was really powerful and just Helped me, honestly, helped me because this, we just went like in August and it helped me to like deal with like certain times when I'm about to perform. I'm using some of the mindful techniques now, like, yo, just to stay present and, you know, because it's always, no matter what, before a performance or something, I, I get a little nervous, which I love because, you know, it just let me know I love what I'm doing or before a film, I can get nervous. But I, I like using the techniques that I have to. To like kind of get it centered or whatever, and obviously it goes deeper than that when you're dealing with different traumas and different things. But I, I gotta ask you, CJ, is it do you do you get nervous before games at all? I get this uneasy feeling. It's it's hard to explain. It's like like when it, rarely do I get this feeling. Like when I was about to propose, I had the feeling of like happiness, excitement. But like not knowing what's going to happen, like the fear. I think it's like a fear of the unknown because you've prepared, but you're not sure like how the game's going to go. You right. know what I mean? Like it's kind of like you prepared for your skit, but you just truly never know how it's really going to go. So yeah. I think it's like a excitement. But yeah, I haven't gotten nervous since I was younger, just because I didn't know what it was like. When you don't know what it's like. It's hard to really not be nervous because you're like, I don't know what's about to happen out here. Like, this is my first time ever playing in front of 20,000. I'm a rookie. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then as you get older, it's just, it's just, I get excited, man. But I've learned how to kind of control my heart rate, like you said before, like focus, deep focus, breathing. Like, I really practice that stuff. So, like, in crucial situations, like, I can get my heart rate down so I can kind of relax, make free throws, or knock down a big three, or really remember, like, we call it a play three. We called this play uh, four possessions ago. Brian was here. He was supposed to be over here. Let's run this again and see if he knows where he's supposed to be at. Or we got a rookie on the court. There's no way he's going to know the, the right coverage if we run this ball screen slip. So right. now I can like kind of process stuff better because I can lower my heart rate. But, but I used to be nervous, so nervous I could barely run up and down the court when I was younger. <laughs> I feel like yeah. I was going to shit, shit, shit myself out there on the court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yeah, I agree. It's, it's an excitement. It's an excitement. It's a I understand what you're saying because it's like a, a real excitement. Like, but I, I did get before we were about to perform at the at the uh, uh, Oscars, and this lady was like, "Man, you know, this producer was like, man, you know, it's gonna be billions of people watching, a billion something." She said, like, internationally, I was like, it ain't that many. I was thinking, but it did make me a little nervous, and then I just did what I had to do, prayed and centered myself, and felt it was a higher purpose. So. I kind of understand exactly what you're saying. It's like now I, I'm, I don't never, I'm not nervous where I'm like, I can't do it, but it's just like, I, I get excited and it's a, and it's a feeling like you said, you can't describe almost. Right. But like once you, it's crazy. Cause once you get in the moment, it's, it's so fun. You forget that what you're doing. Like you literally, like you'll be playing a game and you'll be like, 
this is crazy. I'm literally playing a game right now in front of like eight million people. Like this is this is fun. Like this is how I this is how I dreamed of this, and and I'm just out here hooping, and this is fun to me. Like it's crazy. Yeah, I know, I know, all, yeah. I know all about that when I'm writing the column in front of my screen at home. <laughs> you like, you like, yo, they gonna they gonna love this. They gonna love this story. <laughs> Very similar, you know. I know there's gonna be joy because you know, like, like you want people to feel that joy. So you just like, man, you create this. Like you creating something that you hoping people get inspired by, or moved by, or relate to, or or whatever. If you create it for them to laugh at, whatever. But it's still something you don't know what the response gonna be. So it got to be That's something true. there. I appreciate that. I will say that I was nervous the first time I went on ESPN Live. I ain't gonna lie to you. That was that was weird to me. Like being on being on Sports Center. Like really in the studio when they like the cameras just come on you. The light hits you in the face. I was like, oh, the light. That light is bright. <laughs> them and lights hot. are them lights are crazy. I was like, goodness. Yeah. Plus that's that's one of them things where too is like because you having like you grew up playing ball, so you've done it. Like you said, you prepare. You know you prepare. You know if you get on the court, you can play with anybody. The, be- the the best in the world, you in the top players in the world, so you know that. But like when you you know when you're doing something that that you haven't done your whole life or haven't done for a long time, it's definitely it feels new. So you like you said, it's the unknown that's there. Like because I've felt that at time now. Like I do speaking engagements and stuff now. I, you know I I'm more confident in it. But initially I was like, I gotta do this speech. I really want to be good at it. As much as I perform and all the other stuff, because it was, I wasn't like a speaker all the time. I had to work at it. That's a good and point. Get it done. Now, now it's something That's I do point, naturally. I, I appreciate you coming on, man. I don't have any more questions unless you do, Jordan. I, I, you were a great, you were a great guest, man. We gotta get you some. We gotta get some wine for you. Jordan said you're a big wine fan, man. We gotta get you some Pinot, some Oregon Pinot. Yeah, I, I definitely like a good red wine. But I, I appreciate you, man. Well, man, thank y'all, man. Take it easy, man. Okay, bless y'all. Once again, I want to thank our special guest, Rasheed Lynn, a.k.a. Common, for coming on the Pull Up Pod. Great guy, great insight, doing a lot of stuff for the community. Uh, actor, activist, musician, entertainer. Got some great conversations in, man. And for all those listening out there, we truly do appreciate you guys tuning in. Faithfully, we hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Not sure if we'll be able to get a, a pod in before Thanksgiving. So hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving, and hopefully we can continue to get some wins during this long road trip. You can catch us on Apple PodcastRadio.com and everywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to pull up. Pull up.